Well, welcome everybody. It is another episode of Never Stay Dead. And I am Damien, and I'm joined by my old buddy, Matthew. Matthew, my partner in crime. And today the crime is going to be Ronin by Frank Miller. What is this? I, I should have checked the copyright date. It's a miniseries that Frank Miller put out back before they had miniseries. Yeah, we, we should jump to that, but um, I'm trying to look at the year now. Copyright 1983. Yeah, 1983. That's yeah. Normally, I, I care a little less about the dates, but I mean, think about like the impact Frank Miller's had on comics and all that. Right. And this is 1983. This is proto miller this is proto so many right. things in a lot of way well so miller was coming right off of a stellar run on his first stellar run on daredevil that mm. kind of shook up the comic book superhero world a bit and he was such a big star that uh, jeanette khan uh, the publisher of dc wooed him until she convinced him he could um come to dc and do anything he wanted so he called the shots, according to this introduction I read. Did you read the introduction too by Jeanette Kahn? Um, yeah, I, I saw a bit of that. I actually uh, heard an interview with Frank Miller as well, uh, stepping through some of this. I'd like to track that down. Well, so uh, just to finish what I was saying, and then you can add more that you learned from. But my understanding is, you know, he said, okay, well, I want to do these deluxe edition limited series books with that I own the copyright to and I control the color and the subject matter and she said okay and the first thing that came out of that was this Ronin series that's right and and I should say it's colored by Lynn Varley who I think was either his girlfriend or wife at that by that point and what what I think is really kind of nifty is how kind of galling that is because now we think of creator-owned comics and maybe sometimes deluxe to that and it not being you know such a big thing for a superstar at least but i mean this idea of a creator-owned comic as an imprint in dc or marvel is i don't think this was the first i'm i've got to look and see whether the epic line had started Although the early epic graphic novels were properties. Right. So it, it may be that Marvel had already done Jim Starlin's Dreadstar, which I think would be the first Marvel thing where the creator owned the um, copyright. So I'm just not quite sure what. And then I don't know how you'd count like New Gods or something like that. You know? Oh, but DC owned the New Gods copyright 100%. Okay. Well, I, I mean... Yeah, this was fresh and exciting, but it maybe wasn't like inventive. It was iterative, I guess is all I'm trying to say. And uh Um Well, I think it was pretty radical though, in my opinion. Um the way I understand something like I mean the the new gods deal, <laughs> which fell through re- very quickly, was pretty radical, letting someone be his own writer, editor and um and artist and such. But he had a lot of limits placed upon him that Frank Miller didn't. Right. But it may have, so I, I'd have to look up Dreadstar, but it may have been in the air that some of the people were starting to um, ask for more rights. 
you know, it, it was just a short time before this that they got the right to keep their own original art. Oh, Dreadstar came out in 1982. Okay. So that's, that is interesting. So maybe Frank Miller looked to uh, what was going on in Epic and said, well, what can you do for me? And maybe, maybe this was originally intended for Epic, or maybe he was considering that. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, the historical record versus what was, who knows, but... Uh, Did uh, the, what you heard from uh, from the interview with Frank Miller add anything to the origin? Not really, Toys. It didn't really add anything. Just maybe a bit more of his flair on it, but I, yeah. it doesn't change it much. Um, but still, even taking into account Dreadstar and maybe a few other epic things, it still was pretty major... For DC to say, here's carte blanche, do what you want. Oh, yeah. And Frank Miller really ran with it because this, I remember being, you know, a huge Daredevil fan. I was expecting something closer to Daredevil. This was like something totally out there in a different direction, aside from the fascination with, you know, samurai, Ronin kind of stuff. Well, and it's interesting because a big part of what he wanted to do was take um, some influences that he was seeing from, near as I can tell, any comics he found that weren't American. So right. there's kind of this artistic uh, take from like heavy metal, Morbius kind of stuff. Mobius. Mobius. Every time. <laughs> Every time. And, uh, and also the heavy influence of lone wolf and cub which right. he also helped bring over to the States. right so he had to have been in fact it's, i read somewhere either in he in the book itself or somewhere else just recently that he was reading the story with lone wolf and cub with just the pictures he didn't he did not have a translation he did not know what right. was what the words were which I think is very telling because I feel like the best way to go through Ronan at points is to just enjoy the pictures. <laughs> and and Jeanette Kahn emphasizes a lot the heavy metal side of things. And she talks about how when that in the profession they all were looking at metal, metal herlant, the French version, before it was translated, and you know, being amazed at the freedom of the art and wondering if the stories that went with the art were any good. And they felt when they saw the translations that the stories weren't that good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and, and that can be argued, I'm sure, but that was, that's what she thought anyway. And so I kind of read into this of, because of that introduction, a kind of Frank Miller saying, I'm going to take a lot of what I like about heavy metal, but really make a story out of it, not just a dream a fever dream that sort of comes and goes quickly because the the stories in heavy metal were not long back then. Um, sorry, did I say, sorry. say something um, sexual? Considering where we're going, that's pretty funny to me. Um, I uh, that that is true. What I also got from the interview with Frank Miller was that he is a cocky sob at uh -huh. this point. And well, he was the biggest star in American comics at this particular moment. No, I, and you so, know, someone who was young. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, completely earned, but still a cocky SOB. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm um, not. I'm. I'm saying that makes a lot of sense. I'm not saying it's. Yeah. He should have been. Okay. <laughs> um, and also, uh, 
the the two influences that we're talking about here also feel like the only international comics that he interacted with like he he made like a small reach and was like oh well look at what all these other people are doing i want to bring that in because it's just not what you know his quote-unquote contemporaries were doing Mm -hmm. there's just this air of like i i don't know just wanting to do something else just to be different and be kind of cool with it rather than maybe a, a finer appreciation of what was going on there which if they couldn't even read it really uh follows through well so yeah i i think where you're going is my own thought that in terms of writing this was a bit of a step back for him compared to his daredevil work but perhaps a step forward artwork wise well but before we get too deep into that i kind of want to give our audience a little sense of the plot um, but but respond to what I said if you had a response. Well, I, I mean, it's compared to his Daredevil work, yes. Though the, the the story in here is interesting, and um, just to say, like the art of Daredevil had some moments that still stay with me in a way that sure, maybe some sure. parts of Ronan Doe. I, I I think all of it's good, but I think your assessment's overall correct. I just I I don't want to. It's a broad. I I didn't mean to say the artwork in Daredevil wasn't good, or there aren't some good isn't some good writing in Ronin. But uh, you didn't. I yeah. I just could see where someone might take the tone the wrong way, and I just wanted to yeah clarify exactly where I was at with it. That's all. So a brief (laughs) good luck, buddy. A brief overview. I'm gonna make it brief. It's a science fiction story of a decimated ugly future New York City with an evil corporation and one of their two of their main experiments are one is this uh, sort of self-replicating computer stuff like plastic that can think kind of in a way that eventually (laughs) develops into this uh, AI called Virgo Mm -hmm. and the character Billy is a someone they're experimenting with to see what his powers are, a, some kind of psychic who has no arms and legs. And he's in love with their security person. And huge spoiler here, okay? I'm just going to go out and throw it. So if you haven't read Ronin and you really want to and you don't want to be spoiled, the big reveal is Billy turns into Ronin. And it may be all, I guess it's all from actually some Japanese TV show that was fed to him by Virgo that causes him to turn into Ronin. And so we get a lot of, we get a romance between Ronin and Casey, the the security guard, and we get the evil demon from the TV show taking, apparently taking over the president of the company and deciding to use their technology for war. And, and we get some adventures in the uh, grotesque cannibal laden um outside world outside of the sort of technological bubble and ultimately with a little help from casey and her husband the ronin slash billy defeats the evil virgo who want wants to take over i guess and replace humanity eventually with itself i'm guessing and other stuff i guess we'll get to that it's almost it's almost a cyberpunk story and the first cyberpunk novel came out a year after this which is interesting yeah i'm not maybe blade runner had already come out and i know the 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 writer of the first 
cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer, William Gibson, went to see Blade Runner and had to leave in the middle because it was too close to what he was doing, at least visually. But, but um, wait, wait, does that mean dreaming? Uh, I, I'm spacing the, the title Philip dreaming of Electric book. Sheep or whatever. Yeah. It, would that not then be the first cyberpunk book? No, um, but certainly Philip K. Dick is a big influence on cyberpunk. And the um, yeah, I think it was okay. just the noir, a noir future, which is not from the Philip K. Dick book, is from Ridley Scott. Well, there's, I thought there's other tenets that signified it as cyberpunk officially, though that's like subgenre stuff that's always wishy-washy and maybe not super relevant here. Cyberpunk um, usually involves... Uh, Giant corporations, check. Evil giant corporations, but those did exist before. Um, and it usually <laughs> yeah, involves did. some kind of computer-human interface, which isn't exactly what's going on here, but sort of. It's completely, I mean, going on. And um, it often involves AIs and stuff. And it's hard to really define cyberpunk, but the there's certainly elements here that are similar to the stuff that William Gibson and the other early cyberpunk writers were playing with. And of course they were writing some of their short stories um, in the early eighties too. But, and it seems likely to me, Frank Miller was not reading them. So it just seems like coincidence, (laughs) but it might be that he was reading early stories published in obscure science fiction magazines by William Gibson and Bruce Sterling and, and the like. Well, I, I I want to jump in with a couple things. The first one is, is as we've talked about this, and I'm sure as many of you know, this comic was a huge influence on a cartoon that came out later called Samurai Jack, um, which... That's interesting. Just, yeah, I can see it. But there's yeah. so much other stuff that came in the intervening years between this and Samurai Jack. I'm oh yeah, but I mean, that... when you break it down, like this is uh-huh. direct influence. Uh-huh. There's so many similarities, but the tone is 100 percent different. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and so I, I want to dig in a little on that. So the first issue is its own microcosm, which right. actually informs the rest. Uh, so the first one is really just a samurai story. Most of it. There are flashes of science fiction. And it, okay, yeah. there's flashes forward, and, but really. And, and by the end of the issue, the samurai, the ronin, has come into our time as as the demon. Or not our time, but the time of the futuristic story. As has the demon that he was battling back in the past. And I have to say, my most favorite part, story-wise, was that medieval Japanese portion of the story. Like a medieval fairy tale horror story kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's a samurai tale played pretty straight, um, with this uh, with, with the Ronin who is not a Ronin yet, um, you know, helping his master um, deal with the, uh, goons attacking, <laughs> um, and we find out about this sword that drinks the blood of its enemies, but the sword needs the blood of an innocent to kill was it a coup a got no sorry a coup a coup samurai from, jack. <laughs> yeah, samurai jack. now i want to go rewatch samurai jack it's been a while uh, um yeah so uh, the, the master 
partakes in the uh, joys of the flesh when a uh, a uh, woman of the night stops by. Uh, there's some there's some definite. This is important too. There's some definite misogyny here, but nothing out of bounds and something completely befitting a samurai story of this, which is you know presumably what like Edo period or whatever. Um, yeah, they mention Edo. The dancing woman mentions Edo. Okay, yeah. So, and it turns out the woman is this demon. Uh, and so, he kills the master, which leaves us with our Ronin, mm-hmm. who then travels to go kill the demon. Doesn't he spend years training first? Yeah, training, traveling, and all that. And then we catch him on basically the eve before... He's ready to pay it revenge. And there's a, a mother and a son, and he, he kind of tells the, the tale of the blade and all that. And she gets worried about her child because it needs the blood of an innocent. And he says, <laughs> there's not, basically, there's not enough of the child to <laughs> wet the blade for that. And, and don't you worry. And he basically pulls that, oh, there's a name for it that I can't remember, but he pulls that pretty classic samurai move where he tricks the demon by turning around and impaling himself and then the demon right. through which is where he gets the blood of an innocent because he has never he, he's a stick in the mud he he never partakes of he has remained pure and idealistic his entire life the entire time so there's a scene yeah. where he fights a giant rat which made me think of uh ninja turtles yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that this book was a huge influence on the Ninja Turtles. When they talk about the Frank Miller influence, I really have to believe this was a large part but of this it. this must have been coming out as they were working on Ninja Turtles, I would think. You think? Because I mean, it came I out guess. in 83, and I think it crossed over into 84, and didn't Ninja Turtles come out in 84? I don't know what part of the year in 84 they came out. I actually looked sure. that up. Yeah, it's copyright 83 and 84. So it probably came out towards the end of 83 and the beginning of 84 yeah. i can't remember if it was bi-monthly or how how often it came out yeah but so um, it's very close i mean people's influences were happening very fast <laughs> it's true but um, it definitely has some feel of that yeah and i feel like the only other important thing in the first issue is the kind of carry forward into our apparently proto-cyberpunk world um through this sword um the the memory or the visage or whatever it is uh, of the ronin is put into this cyber level right. as is uh well the demon says you know there's there's time for one final curse you join me ronin forever so the two of them their souls are trapped in the sword right at least that's what we believe. Yeah, yeah. So I, it carries forward. Um, and that's and from there we're in the future. So I would also add that this first issue was a huge mission statement for here is a comic book that visually is like no other at the time that most comic book readers would be used to. Mm-hmm. A little bit. A little bit, uh, perhaps a uh, heavy metal reader might somewhat recognize, but even that, um, it's a lot of double page spreads, which were very unusual. 
and um, some like this this one I'm gonna show Matt, but the rest of you can't see it. But like ones like this, like double page spreads spent on just a scene showing what the city's like and what the this weird organic growth of the of the corporation. There's your heavy metal influence. I swear that page reminded me of Meta Barons. Yeah. But Meta Barons wasn't out yet. But also they just even in heavy metal they didn't use these giant pages. I don't believe. I no, but that kind of visual was in there, like the big pullout with the big cityscape or whatever. Yeah, Meta Barons wasn't out at all. That's crazy. Yeah, a lot of this stuff, I just think, like here I'm showing Matt a page uh, where he stabs the demon through his own body and this double page spread. It was just very unusual stuff. And I mean, for me, it's hard for me to parse uh, And maybe that. taking the heavy metal stuff and saying, I'm going to push it even a little further. At least the stuff that people had seen in heavy metal. Yeah. Time. I'll look back through the Inkal because that would be the first, quote, Meta Barons book that came out. But I don't think you get these big double page spreads and that that sort of thing there. That's true. We also get some kind of Frank, I mean, this would be proto Frank Miller stuff, but like he has his fetish punk black chick with a Nazi armband thing going on. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of stuff that we see will recur. And a few things we've already seen, like in the first Daredevil run, this obsession with sort of a subterranean world with people living down there who are barely human anymore mm -hmm. and that sort of thing and also the sense of uh, racial divides and in a very ugly kind of way it gets even uglier here than than in uh, any marvel comic or any daredevil that's true i also feel like there's something about the way he visualizes uh brutalism and the way like mm -hmm. like the way the face gets puffed up after a beating that's kind right. of a signature frank miller thing that that appears well and this is the first time he's able to rather than just so show swords that poke out people's clothing in the back now he's showing hands getting cut off and all kinds of sort of brutal things even though it's still not very realistic like that scene where he got cuts off a guy's two hands might be in the second or third issue uh and the guy's alive later <laughs> I think you would just bleed to death in that situation unless there was a hospital right nearby, which obviously there isn't in this world. It feels like there's some justification for all the ultra violence, though, to kind of like show the brutality of like this old world warrior versus kind of the softer, you know, people of the future that have been pampered where even though some of them can fight or whatever, they just can't uh, contend with this you know this physical specimen or however it is it is very much kind of that you know superman dynamic um another thing here uh when it comes to the inking and i don't know how prominent it was but this it felt very interesting is all the cross hatching that at some points kind of comes out to where you can really see it and it's not tight enough that it feels like you know shading as much as like deliberate cross right. it's, it's more like you're looking at lines rather than getting the illusion of shade you're actually looking at the lines it's it's art that is very much letting you know that it's a drawing and it's a piece of art it's not trying to make the illusion of something else i felt i feel like he's stretching maybe not always successfully for a new style 
the I think the next thing he did after this was uh, The Dark Knight Returns, and I think he pared down his style more by then. But this was part of his evolution away from the style he had over at Marvel. Definitely. Um, and, and, I mean, this book still stands out visually. It's just... It's a hell of a thing to look at, but it also seems to fall into something of a curse. Though it shouldn't, in this case, necessarily, but, like, with a lot of the early image creator books, um, where the artist is given free reign to write, and suddenly the artist can't help but, like, fill so much space with, like, word bubbles, and it feels like some of it should have been pared down, and there are some just walls of text in this book that just are so easy to glide over because it feels like nothing is happening with them. Yeah. It's, I, I, I sort of feel like, well, you were saying what a hot, how he was kind of a cocky hotshot. You know, he's the cocky hotshot, and now he can tell DC what he wants, and he says, I want 48-page issues or however long they are. And so suddenly he's got all this space, and he used to used to be working at, 19 or 20 page issues with an editor telling him you have to end on this kind of beat at the end of every issue and now he's he's like just going for all kinds of crazy stuff and and maybe we would have been as readers better off if he had an editor saying okay we can really pare this issue down to 20 pages but he was having fun or something and i feel like um when you look at his books like 300 that this is almost like a a sketchbook for those a tryout where, you know, uh, and I'm not necessarily saying those are better books than this, but they're more. The 300 book is more um, controlled and limited, and this one's just sort of all over the place. Uh, just because he's almost just because he's having fun doing all this stuff. Well, and I don't think it would be much to say that it suffers from it. I mean, of Frank Miller's work, this is one of the least talked about, I believe. And I think partially because it's just hard to parse. It's mm-hmm. kind of hard to read and it's not his strongest work by a long shot. Um, 300 is interesting, but it is right to it. You right. Know, there's not a lot of confusion. Right. So this, like a, Writers often talk about how they might write, you know, I'm talking about prose novelists and stuff. They might write 40, 50, 100 pages at the beginning of their book and then throw them out and say, okay, here's where the book really starts and start there. Mm-hmm. And this feels like someone who didn't throw out all this, all the ex- excess stuff. But, but it's int- re- makes it really fun to look at. It's just less fun to read. What gets me is that there's that first chapter we're talking about, and it sets up all this through the samurai, and we haven't really talked about this yet, but as we moved through the cyberpunk and as we start developing Casey, um, we see a lot of interesting subversion, especially for 1983. But the first issue, a few main notes, and then the last issue create a really strong story but there is a bunch of stuff in the middle that just it may add to the world or something but it really doesn't matter and it certainly could have uh, had some word balloons you know nipped and tucked yeah well and you mentioning Casey makes me realize for a portion of the story she becomes the main character and she is a, a very strong 
I was going to say macho. <laughs> She's a very strong, uh, independent, aggressive kind of character, the kind that, that is a very good character to follow. And then for a while, her husband becomes kind of the main character. And then finally we go back to sort of Casey and Ronan together being main characters, with Ronan being the main character in the first issue. So there's that kind of floating around, playing with characters, too. Um, but I was impressed at, because again, we're talking 1983, and we're talking about a guy in his early 20s in 1983, that he's creating this some very strong characters here, particularly the female character and her husband, I thought. Right. Well, I mean, they have this connection, but what's interesting is, I mean, we have this kind of flow through, um, and I don't believe it came through as crispy, crisply as it should have, because you're talking about this ba bouncing back and forth. And I believe it was supposed to be a transfer of the narrative from the Ronin slash Ronin to Billy to Casey, because um, what we discover by the end, is it okay if I just jump to the end of this? Because I, yeah. So we find that Billy, who is this paraplegic, who has incredible mental abilities but is able to play within this um cyber realm which is uh th this uh virtual construct called virgo which is effectively making a kind of matrix x situation where there's this cyber world that has influences over the real world through um the Aquarius complex because Aquarius is the corporation that has built right. Virgo to help influence and kind of um, lull the citizens uh, to live in this hellscape. Yeah, this could be the beginning of the Matrix, like a a, seek, a prequel to the Matrix. <laughs> right. Uh, that was a good point you made. Sorry, sorry, you you weren't finished there. I... Oh, do you have a point here? Because I'm kind of just oh, running. Oh, well, you're this talking time. about how. What we realize near the end of the story is most of what's happened was created with the power of Billy's mind somehow manipulated by Virgo or interface with Virgo. I wasn't totally clear on that. Like where what, where what happened, where the manipulations of Virgo ended and the psychic power of Billy began. Right, and I believe it's supposed to be somewhat ambiguous, but the other wrench in here is that Billy has been consuming the show this old samurai show which is where this tale is from right and so he's concocted himself in the cyberspace to be the ronin and he's kind of brought along billy to say you know we need to slay the demon but the demons become representative of the operational core of virgo and so and so when billy yeah. finally comes into his own he's able to destroy virgo but he doesn't he does isn't that there's this big explosion which in the physical edition is a huge fold-out book oh and at the end all that's left is him and casey so it implies that they are going to ride off into the sunset together he's naked and she's looking at him and that's the last page and everything else is gone um so I, I mean, well, they—he has that big moment, um, but they reconvene. In my interpretation, he's destroyed the entire city, and just left him and his lady love alive. So it's kind of a weird ending. 
it, it is well it's weird but there's a whole and it's open to interpretation too because it's purely visual. but there's a whole uh other chunk there's a whole nother end bit that is big document here what other end bit is there? well like when she kills him <laughs> what where when does she kill him uh, oh there's a scene that yeah that shows him helping him do seppuku yeah she she well she's basically talking him into it because he's not but it's very unclear if that really happens it does definitely so but she's not killing billy she's killing this version of billy in this world they've got so sucked into that they've lost sight of the real world but then they're embracing, and he's standing up, and he still looks like Ronan. And um, and then everything starts exploding. So it's a very it's very ambiguous to me what happened. Well, I mean, a lot of it's super ambiguous um, because but... of the explosion. I kind of forgot about this Sipuku. It would have to me would have been a better thing, but Billy had to die to defeat Virgo and leave him dead. But instead, maybe it's supposed to be inside his mind. What happens at the end that the two of them are together? But th- that's not clear. <laughs> um, <laughs> or what were you going to say? Or do you have a, another, yet another explanation? Well, so um, there's all this crazy stuff with uh, Virgo and him and like that that we're talking about. But then ultimately, uh, Casey reconnects with the the ronin construct who's become cyber and then agat's talking to them again and then she says this is all bullshit and she drops the samurai pretense Mm -hmm. and suddenly has like a glock and not like a cyber gun like it's a pistol which is weird uh really where is it this is uh chapter six the last few pages right yeah, yeah. This is I don't the see end. the Glock. I just see a sword. Uh, uh, page two sixty four. <laughs> I don't have. Yeah. There's little numbers for this issue, like page forty three, forty five. He starts committing seppuku, or however you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's 45. right before he commits seppuku. Right before um, he commits seppuku. Right, and so. Oh, there. Uh, where she shoots the demon with her Glock. And he's just made of that plastic AI stuff. Right. And then, and then yeah, and then there's that last page where they reconvene. But like, um, but at the very end here, she's the one taking control and saying, you were the one that wasn't enough to defeat him. I was the one who had to defeat him. So in the end, there's this kind of feminist, you know, she takes control, she she's the hero because she's the one who has to do it because she's the one who's real in this scenario. She's the one who got sucked into this whole drama and she has to kind of overcome it. Uh, And if you kind of pull back and kind of forget about chapter one, realize chapter one was just informing kind of the bizarre setup. She follows the hero's arc. She's a reluctant hero who gets dragged through, and then there's this divisive moment that's really weird where she forgets about the fact that the Ronin killed all her men because she's the police captain and ends up just kissing him, <laughs> um, which is kind of that shift of character. And then uh, we move through, and then she 
you know, gets the devices and training she needs to go and, you know, defeat the big bad. And then ultimately there's that last little rejoinder where she has to put him through seppuku, which is also then, like, destroying Virgo. And then they awaken to what? And it's it's a very... It's a very ambiguous ending, which wouldn't be so bad, but I feel like he wanted this to be a masterpiece where people could come at it from so many angles and, you know, like really explore the work and have to reread everything and all that on all that. But it just, there's so much kind of bunk and it's just, it needs a little more grounding. Well, and it felt like at the end, he felt like just by visual razzmatazz he could make you feel as if there was some clear ending when there wasn't and it he was wrong it didn't work and that's why he he put into this you know five page gatefold explosion as if that would you know satisfy one's sense of 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 a climax and a conclusion right i think you know if he were to rewrite this he he would have focused on the characters even more or should have. And so like, I think he needed to set up the Billy character who becomes Ronin better. Cause all he was, was, Oh, I'll do whatever you say, Virgo. I'm floating here. And I love Casey. And that was about it. You know, that's all he was. And later we find out he had issues with his mom a little bit, but, and then, um, yes, it is Casey's journey, but it, and you're very right about that, but it's not well in focus. So what, by the time they have their conclusion, we haven't had a clear journey of where these two characters come from and what it's fully done to them. We, ha- we have the visual razzmatazz instead. And we have the elements that we can put together for most of it, except for understanding what happened after the seppuku seppuku happened. Right. Well, and also this is very similar to another book we read in um, Tokyo Ghosts. Yes. Where so many of the themes are there, you know, that cyber world where you get too jacked into the cyber and you forget about the real world. And so they need to return to the real world. But here we never see much of the real world. So that connection is ambiguous. Could they even survive the real world that they ended because it would just be a crater? In many ways, this feels a lot like a a image comic of the last decade, <laughs> you know, yeah. a lot of those Rick Remender and, um, you know, who are the other writers who like to do science fiction out there? Um, a lot of those writers do stories kind of like this of a desperate, deluded character in this big science fiction idea, but they're kind of pitiful characters in some way. And they come in some slightly horrific way to have to kind of sacrifice themselves or something along those lines, very much in the Tokyo ghost vein. Yeah. So, and Hey, I bet image, maybe this is, this is the first attempt perhaps, or one of the first attempts at melding some of those things people like from the Euro Euro comics and the manga into what we now have as kind of a standard type of science fiction, extended graphic novel, series usually now um book i bet image would love to get a frank miller exclusive <laughs> it's interesting that he works with dc and and in the past dark horse but not image the colors are amazing and if you think about what 1983 comics looked like 
there weren't many comics published on such nice paper and with such nice coloring. And other colorists who were beginning to work on nicer paper, I don't think had as good of a feel for it as Lynn Varley does at this early stage. Right. And the, the color here is is the kind of coloring that I would expect current really good colorists like you know Bill Crabtree or um, uh, what's her name uh, Tamara Bonvillain or someone like that to working on a book to like this to do maybe with a little more complexity to the color but the general way of of doing the page and everything yeah so it's kind of a fascinating not quite successful book now my big question is you i wanted to reread this because you told me when we were discussing frank miller and i'm not blaming you for it but i'm just curious you at one point told me well this was frank miller's best book so had you some memory of reading this when you were young and thinking (laughs) it was his best book or did you just see someone else say that? I mean, yeah, rereading it, it didn't uh, quite satisfy uh, as much this time. I'll admit. Right. And also, now that I think about it, that was before I read any of his Daredevil work. Ah, um, right. And I mean, I, I'd i say this. I would rather read this than any of his Batman work or any of like Sid City, really, or 300 or that kind of stuff. Not that, I mean, I want to read that from time to time, but I mean... I, I would still put this above a lot of those because it is kind of a beautiful mistake and it has so much visual complexity right. and weirdness that I love. It's not the most successful at it, but um, there's a lot in here that I do like. And uh, and honestly, I mean, for where a lot of people love Frank Miller, a lot of his stuff I don't think is... I don't think it's bad in any way, but I don't think it's worth the accolades that it gets. I don't think The Dark Knight Returns is so great, you know. Well, I wonder if it was viewed as, I mean, I don't think it was a flop, but I wonder if it wasn't as big as they expected, you know, because they got the biggest artist in comics at that moment. I mean, look at the price tag. I wonder if that's why he did Batman next. Let's have him do something a little safer. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of eggs in this basket. It might have done oh, I have no idea how it did relatively, but um yeah, yeah I mean, clearly it wasn't nearly as successful as many other things right. he did. And I'm kind of sad cuz I think maybe it caused him to back away from science fiction cuz he had a lot of good science fiction ideas in here, but it maybe it got out of control and and but he might have written more good science fiction stories later. Instead, he kind of fell back to the noir and, and stuck more closely to that. Well, and then doing 300 and, and its sequel. Well, and I think might have part of it might have been like there wasn't as much of this like harder sci-fi kind of stuff at the time. And then when he did Sin City, there wasn't so much noir. And since both of those have come out, both of those things have become more prevalent. Yeah. Right, because... Uh, noir crime books are also a staple of image comics right now. <laughs> and actually, now that I think of it, he did do another science fiction series, the Martha Washington series. Oh, yeah, that's something I have yet to pour through. I only read part of it, and I haven't gone back and read it in so long. Um, that might be fun to look at someday. For me, anyway. I'm not saying necessarily for a podcast. Yeah, no, but I, I am interested. I have that somewhere, and I should read it. Um, and then, yeah, because so he did Bat, he did Batman Returns and Batman Year One, and then he returned to the Daredevil and Elektra stories several times, 
mm-hmm. before sort of breaking through again completely independently um, with, uh, with, I guess, Sin City, or maybe with Martha Washington. With, I'm not sure who. I think Martha Washington was Dark Horse also. I'm not sure which, so. which came when. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I mean, and I'm kind of glad he's able to do it, but I mean, considering how big of an influence he is on comics, the amount of comics he put out is yeah. relatively small. Not that I mean, it, it's a body of work, don't get me wrong, but when you compare it to like uh, what Alan Moore put out, or I mean, but on the other hand, you know, he's writing and drawing a lot of it, so that's a different beast. I don't know. Do you have any other notes on this one? I, I thinking about it now, I kind of wish that uh, there was just a comic about the samurai training himself to fight the demon. There probably is something like that in manga, I suppose, somewhere. Yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I I was nonplussed or not knowing how to respond to kind of the white Nazi gang and the black gang. Yeah. I felt like Frank Miller didn't like either of them. <laughs> yeah. And what about there was there were scenes that he kept flashing back to these a white man and a black man tied up together in a pit. And I think some creature or Maybe just cannibals who lived underground were slowly like clawing at them, and we just kept coming back to them. And I kept thinking that Ronan would interact with them or have something to do with them, and he never did. Yeah, which just makes it feel like why? Why was that there? I felt like there was supposed to be some point about racism or lack of, you know, evil on both sides. <laughs> and there was a there was an evil hippie who wanted to be Ronin's manager as Ronin the badass gangster and he wanted to somehow be his manager. He didn't read him as evil, I guess, as much as like um, part of the system that was corrupt, but generally trying to help. I mean, he's just trying to make a buck. Contrary to everything that a, uh, that a hippie was supposed to be. And another intriguing thing is, is Casey sleeps with the Ronin in a very intense kind of way, and then later discovers the Ronin is this construct of this sort of almost, not mentally retarded, but psychologically undeveloped mind. (laughs) Yeah, well... And I would have liked that explored a little more, but it's not the kind of book to explore people's feelings, I guess. Well, also, maybe that's part of the problem with the book that I wasn't thinking about because I'm so desensitized now, but... um... At the time, this would have been kind of that early HBO factor, right? Like, there's sex, there's blood, there's violence, oh my god. And so people would be checking it out just for that. Whereas it definitely kind of leans on it as a crutch. And it's this, the sexuality stuff just doesn't read right because it just kind of happens. And it's that kind of thing, which you also saw in Heavy Metal, where they were saying, look how mature we are because we're showing this kind of stuff. And yeah, if you're 15, you are convinced that, oh, that's mature. But (laughs) if once you're 25, it's like, no, that's actually kind of teenager-ish of you, the way you're um, approaching it. Right. There's that whole funny effect. You also see that in underground comics where they think they're being mature when they're actually just being extra immature. Yeah. And maybe underground comics is another influence here. Um, But it's hard hard to pinpoint. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say I see a lot of, um, uh, oh wow, now I'm just spacing on all their names, you know, Fat Freddy Guy or uh, 
or crumb or something like that. <laughs> I don't think I see that in here. Well, that's not the only stuff that was going on in, um, in fact, Robert Corbin came out of the underground comics and you had people like Spain and, um, what's his name? Greg Irons hmm. and some other people who were doing all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, there was a gambit because it was underground comics. So it was just the medium, uh, done, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I just don't know if I could think of anything that feels like that in here. Because this is this is all pretty out there. This is all pretty uh, genre sci-fi. I mean, there's a whole branch of underground comics that basically took the stuff they loved from EC comics, but then threw in a whole bunch more violence and sex, and maybe yeah. sometimes environmental sort of uh, messages and that kind of thing. In fact, there was a whole comic book devoted to it called, um, was it Last Gasp or Slow Death? Or maybe both of those were comics devoted to that. Probably. Slow Death definitely was. Well, I should have said this maybe at the beginning, but we still could use comments on iTunes or anywhere else. We are now available on Spotify. I don't know if Spotify has ratings or comments for podcasts. But uh, I would still like to get us to be, you know, more of a podcast and less of a podcast that people listen to on YouTube, just in case we ever want to just dump YouTube entirely. Although I do enjoy all the interaction. We get a lot of comments on YouTube, and those are really appreciated. So instead, mail your comments yes. to Damien via snail mail. Yes, I will um, give out Matt's address, and he can then give it, mail it, forward the mail to me. Oh, that that's the best way. You can uh, contact me on Twitter at, at SleepyReader666, and Matt is at MagicalMatt. 42. At MagicalMatt42 on the tweeters. So Twitter, I think, is a really good way to contact us, or at least me. I don't know about you. Maybe you have a strong Instagram or something. But Twitter's probably the best for me. I'm doing a couple Twitter accounts. Um, yeah. And then, is it my pick next? Next is your pick. I don't think you've figured that out yet, so we won't. Oh, I, I got one. You got one? If, you want to tell you, the audience okay who it. it is? And tell you? And me, yeah. Well, I guess we could see if you're up for it. You can see if we, I vomit on my microphone or not. That's the best way to do it. Um, would you be willing to read the miniseries The Hood for Marvel circa 2000s? I have no idea what it is. How long is it? <laughs> Six issues. Okay, sure. The Hoods yeah. or The Hood? The Hood. It was the introduction of that villain that was big for a while. Named The Hood? I don't even yeah. know. So, virgin territory for me. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, so I guess we'll read The Hood next. Unless something goes terribly wrong. So, uh, we will back from the dead or we will not stay dead and we will be back with another episode it might i think this might be episode 29 and that might be we'll be back for episode 30 i may have blazed right over our 25th episode without a food or a haul we did we